Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In today's episode, we're looking at active labour market policies, or ALMPs. ALMPs describe a range of interventions that, amongst other things, seek to help people find decent work and sustainable employment, which are critical pathways out of poverty. For this reason, they are considered part of the spectrum of social protection schemes. But they have other objectives too, reducing unemployment and underemployment, graduating people from benefits, increasing productivity and competitiveness, and even building workforce skills for future economic growth. So today, we'll unpack these various objectives, looking at the evidence from Latin America about their impacts and effectiveness, and the experience of Indonesia's Kartu Prakarja program, a national skills training scheme that has reached more than 16 million people since it was launched in 2020. And we'll ask, are there risks to promoting productivity through schemes designed primarily for protection? My guests for the show today are Ibu Deni Puspa Purbasari, who is Executive Director at the Project Management Office of the Kartu Prakarja Program of the Coordinating Ministry for Economic Affairs at the Republic of Indonesia, and Dr. Veronica Escudero, Senior Economist and Chief of the Skills Active Labour Market Policies and Policy Evaluation Unit in the Research Department of the ILO. Welcome, Ibu Deni and Veronica. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. Veronica, as I outlined at the top, active labour market policies and programs have a range of different objectives. So to start us off, can you give us a sense of, I guess, the breadth of those objectives and what kinds of policies and schemes are we talking about here? Of course, Joe. In a nutshell, active labour market policies are basically government policies aimed at helping and incentivizing workers to enhance their employability to incentivize them as well to actively search for employment and find suitable employment faster. Now, different types of active labor market policies achieve these direct objectives through various channels, such as increasing or enhancing the supply of labor, promoting labor demand through job creation for certain groups, for example, improving the matching between job seekers and vacancies, reducing in work poverty and improving the quality of jobs. In doing so, they could also have broader economic-wide impacts, such as increasing overall employment, improving equity, reducing poverty, among other broader impacts, which are more indirect impacts, actually. Now, to give you some examples, let me take the different types of active labor market policies. So we categorize these active labor market policies in five categories. Training acts on the supply of labor, by enhancing the skills of people and improving their employability. Then we have three types of active labor market policies which aim to impact labor demand. So on the other side, by creating new or improved jobs. First, we have public employment programs, which are also known as public works programs, and they have as their main goal the provision of short-term temporary employment opportunities and income to beneficiaries which are usually vulnerable job seekers. Then we have employment subsidies, which are measures that are about creating incentives to hire or maintain jobs by reducing labor costs. And this can happen either on the employer side by providing subsidies that encourage employers to employ or retain a certain group of workers, for example, youth individuals, or it can be also for workers by giving them an additional financial incentive to re-enter the labor market or not leave the labor market when moments are tough in the economy. 
there is the support for self-employment or micro-enterprise creation. And finally, we have the last type of active labor market policy, which is employment intermediation services or labor intermediation services. And these measures are about connecting job seekers with employers through a range of services, including career advice, labor market orientation, job search assistance, and referral to other labor market policies, including active labor market policies, such as, for example, training. Coming back to the idea of social protection as a category of policies, they're typically about protecting vulnerable people, mitigating against shocks and some of these things. As you've kind of outlined, the active labour market policies have objectives that go well beyond those core protection and prevention objectives. And I guess my question is, why do we consider these programs social protection? This is a very good question, Joe. Here in the ILO, we agree that active labour market policies are part of the social protection suite of policies. I'm not sure if everyone will consider these policies social protection policies, but we do. And we do for a very clear reason. The main goal of active labor market policies is to assist workers in the job search, create new employment opportunities, and increase workers' employability through human capital accumulation, as I mentioned before. But the reason for this objective is that work, especially decent, sustainable work, is the main route out of poverty. And from this perspective, active labor market policies are aimed at protecting people who can and are willing to work and helping them find sustainable sources of income. Veronica, amidst all of those objectives that you've described there, how do we think about active labor market programs helping informal workers into formal employment? And I guess this idea of formalization of the labor market more broadly. One of the the main objectives of active labor market policies, as I mentioned before, is to improve work quality. And reducing informality is one of the main ob- objectives in improving work quality. The potential for active labor market policies to reduce informality has turned out to be backed by evidence. And this is very good news, something that we didn't believe in the past and something that there is much less research than on other variables, like, for example, employment in general. In a meta-analysis that I carried out with some co-authors on the effectiveness of active labor market policies in Latin America and the Caribbean, we found that the probability of finding a job and also of being employed formally are the labor market indicators that are the most likely to be positively affected by active labor market policies in the region. And this is very good news. However, the potential effect of active labor market policies on informality is not homogeneous across the different policy types. And this is something that we have to keep in mind. There is, for example, consensus on the potential effectiveness of training and on employment subsidies on formalization. Training policies, for example, are expected to lead to very quality work due to workers acquiring improved skills during participation, and we find that this is true. Meanwhile, employment subsidies can similarly be expected to have positive effects on work quality, mainly because the policies will likely place participants in firms in the formal sector, at least we hope. And then participants can also improve their skills on the job. The effect, unfortunately, of the remaining three types of active labor market policies on work quality, and specifically on informality, are much less clear. Finally, it is very difficult to foresee how public works would lead to formal sector jobs. In practice, most of the evidence shows that public works do no more than perpetuate the incidence of low-quality jobs. 
Let's turn now to an example of one of these categories that you've talked about focused around skills training. Ibu Deni, Indonesia's Kartu Prakarja. Kartu Prakarja means the pre-work card, was launched in 2020, as I understand it, at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic as a part of a broader set of COVID response measures. Before we get into the details of the program, I wanted to ask you, why was it important for Indonesia to include Kartu Prakarja alongside these other more typical social protection responses? Okay, the design of Prakarja was started in 2019, a year before the pandemic. But the completion of the regulations actually happened in the early 2020, just before the pandemic hit Indonesia. So the initial design of Prakarja was a skill development program to increase the competence, productivity, competitiveness, and also entrepreneurship of Indonesian workforce through skilling, reskilling, and upskilling. So what needs to be highlighted here is that every Indonesian citizen aged 18 to 64 years old and currently not in formal education can register the program. So this program is not intended for the unemployed or informal workers or people in a poor situation. And then when COVID emerged, Ragaja was given an additional mandate to maintain people's purchasing power to face the crisis. Therefore, Ragaja carried out two missions simultaneously. First, to give skill development to the citizens and second, to give social assistance temporarily for four months. We know that disruptions actually not only coming from a pandemic, but we also face technology disruptions, global warming, and many other disruptions that might also occur in the future. So that's why Prakarja is actually the mandate is to be able to deliver public service programs that can prepare skills for the Indonesian citizens to be resilient and face the future challenges, not only just like one-time solutions. So why the government give additional mandate to Prakarja to be social assistance on top to whatever the government already had? Because Prakarja can give social assistance to those who are impacted by COVID but not being covered by the regular social assistance. And the second thing is because Prakarja can do it in a speed and skill because of the digital technology that we employed. So without face-to-face meetings, actually we can deliver cash support to the citizens. So in some, Prakarja works as an ad hoc social assistance program during the pandemic. During COVID, actually giving trainings with cash, not only cash, is very important. Why? Because during the pandemic, many fresh graduates actually could not work and people have to stay at home. So in order to reduce the loss in human capital, reduce the idle capacity and prepare the citizens with new skills required when the economy recovers, that's why Prakarja comes with different types of skills that people can choose and study and practice at home. And then what kind of trainings that we try to give emphasis here We try to equip citizens with digital skills. At the beginning, 
the design is actually providing online and offline trainings. But because of pandemic, we only provided online training. And the type of the trainings that we provide in actually more than 1,000 types of training that people can select. But all online, whether that's via webinar or learning management system. And then what kind of trainings there? Well, starting from food and beverage and then sales and marketing, digital skills, and then administrative work and also technical skills like how to fix air conditioner and then how to run a pet salon business. So we provide different kinds of training and also of course foreign languages starting from Mandarin and English, Chinese, Japanese, and so on. The trainings that improve digital skills and trainings relevant to sales and marketing is actually the number ones in the top demand in the market. Starting this year, the program still consists of two components. The first one is training. The second one is cash incentive. It is a matter of the proportion. During the pandemic, because it is only online trainings, then it is cheap. And because people need some life support, financial support, that's why the cash incentive is actually being increased significantly. But then after the pandemic is over, starting this year, we actually flip the composition. The amount of the scholarships on the trainings increased significantly, more than three times. But the amount of the cash incentive reduced significantly only a quarter of it. Why we give cash incentive after the completion of training is to make sure people actually complete the trainings. The second thing, cash incentive is important to give partial uh, compensation of the opportunity cost during the trainings because people spend some money for internet, for the transportation cost, for the leisure that is foregone, and so on. Veronica, you've looked closely at some of these active labour market programs and policies in Latin America especially. What is the evidence of their effectiveness? So overall, there has been a lot of back and forth in terms of whether these policies are effective or not. And so the first thing that I would like to say is that there is today agreement in the literature that active labor market policies can indeed improve workers' labor market prospects, including job quality. So we could say a lot about the effects they have. In Latin American countries specifically, Active labor market policies have been found to have a positive effect on employment, including formal employment, as well as on earnings. So this is well, uh, good news. It is important to note, though, that these positive effects materialize when policies exceeding certain design and implementation characteristics. For example, our research has found that interventions of sufficient duration, normally more than four months, tend to be more effective as do those that follow a careful targeting strategy, such as, for example, reaching poor, vulnerable individuals. Why appropriate targeting is important? Because one of the main challenges when implementing active labor market policies is ensuring appropriate take-up by the people who should benefit from the policy. And oftentimes we find that active labor market policies are not effective, but it is not necessarily that they are not effective per se, but that many people didn't take up the training or the labor market services that they should have, and therefore we don't see impacts as strong as we would have wished. In this regard, we have found that adjusting participation mechanisms to cater the needs of the targeted populations could improve program effectiveness. For example, we analyzed the Argentinian Seguro de Capacitación y Empleo, 
which has a set of active labor market policies offered to beneficiaries of the famous conditional cash transfer program, Plan Jefes y Jefas de Hogar Desocupados. And we found that at the time, women were underrepresented in the program's activation components, but they were overrepresented in the income support component, which was called Plan Familias. And it was tailored to individuals considered less job ready. And so we found that by enabling the participation of women, it was possible to reduce a dropout of women on the active components of the program. And this could be done, for instance, by providing childcare or grants for women with dependent children while they participate in, the, in an intervention. And this brings us to another interesting finding from the literature, which is that in many cases, active labor market policies should be delivered as a package to be effective. For example, training has been found to be more effective in the long run when combined with counseling and other intermediation services. Uh, while direct job creation, entrepreneurship, and self-employment support and employment subsidies are more effective when combined with training. And to give you an example, in Nicaragua, there is this randomized controlled trial of the conditional cash transfer program called Atención a Crisis, which showed that participants who, in addition to the cash transfer, received either vocational training or an investment grant were more resilient to environmental shocks and had higher incomes and consumption in the two years following the program participation. And these effects were not observed among households which received only the cash transfer. Coming back to the Indonesia example, and speaking of randomized control trials, I know that Kartu Prakarja was the subject of RCTs and some impact evaluation. Ibu Deni, can you talk us through those findings? What impacts did Prakarja have for participants? We actually collaborate with two research institutes. The first one is the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, Jibal, Southeast Asia, and the second one with the Presisi Indonesia. Their findings actually similar, and they also use the RCT method to evaluate the impact of prakerja. So Jepal found that prakerja actually increased the likelihood of using training certificate when searching for a job by 172% compared to the non-participants. And prakerja also helps start new jobs by 18%. Prakerja increased the likelihood of owning a business by 30%. And Prakerja also increased the food security by 6%. Prakerja increased the likelihood of online purchase with e-wallet by 40%, increased the ownership of e-wallet by 53%, and increased income by 122 500 rupiah, or is approximately 10% of average rise in monthly income. So, it's very significant. And then uh, what is interesting here, Presisi Indonesia also use RCT. They found similar results to Jepal, but in addition, they also developed measures of competency, productivity, and competitiveness. Presisi Indonesia found that Prakerja increases wage by around 17 to 21% higher compared to the non-participants and found that women is actually experienced higher increase in competency compared to the men. They also found that the increase of productivity for participants from cities is actually higher from cities and also from Java, also higher compared to the outside Java. 
So we are happy looking at the results, but of course it left some roadblocks for us that how actually to make Pragerja more effective for people who have a low education, live in the village and stay or live outside Java. Veronica, what is good practice when it comes to integrating low-skilled people into labour programs like these and also to build on social assistance schemes, which are already focused on poor and vulnerable people, as you've just mentioned? Very good questions, Joe. And the key challenges for the implementation of these programs, as Ibu Beni mentioned before. In terms of your first question on the integration of vulnerable populations to these types of programs, I would say that one point where the evidence is very clear is adapting the programs to the circumstances of the populations that we want to target. So I gave you the example of women, but I can give you also the example of youth. And there are studies, especially one meta-analysis on youth, that finds that providing youth with uh, transportation tickets or stamps increases the participation of youth into the programs and also the effectiveness of these programs for these populations. And this is also true for people living in rural areas. Now, going back to the second question, what is the potential of integrating active labor market policies with income supporter programs? I think that this is another key aspect in improving, increasing take up of vulnerable participants into the programs. And the more and more countries are implementing active labor market policies and income support programs jointly. And this is very good news because there are clear advantages from implementing these policies together. One of the things that we find is that first, by protecting workers' incomes, cash transfers and unemployment insurance schemes mean that workers can actually afford to participate in active labor market policies. The second important point in favor of the combination of these two types of social protection policies is that receiving income support also means that workers do not have to accept the first low-quality job that becomes available. It means that by having this income support, they can search more intensively and often longer time for better jobs. So the combination of these brings the best out of both types of policies and also ensures that people can actually participate of these policies, especially vulnerable populations. Veronica, I want to talk a bit about the risks or perhaps critiques, this idea of applying or sort of integrating activation or active labour market measures into social assistance programs. What do we need to be sensitive to when we're looking at applying these interventions that are really about productivity into programs that are established to be more about protection? This is a real critique. It's not a critique of the integration of these two programs. It's more a critique of how we integrate these two programs. And when I'm talking about the integration of active labor market policies and income support policies, I'm talking about an equilibrated human-centered model where the objective is at the same time to protect people from material deprivation in the short term, all while supporting their meaningful integration into good or better quality employment in the medium to long terms. So throughout the participation of people, I'm thinking about protection and support. I agree with the critique, and it could indeed be a mistake to promote activation at all costs or to see active labor market policies as an alternative to income support programs. And this would be a mistake 
first of all, because it would go against some basic rights of workers, which are necessary to achieve social justice in societies. But secondly, because it would also be economically inefficient as policies could not be as effective when implemented in this way. Today, we have a numerous impact evaluations of high-income countries that have illustrated that such integrated approaches can help reduce the rate of duration of unemployment and improve employment conditions. It is true that the evidence on the effectiveness of these combined approaches is scant in low- and middle-income countries, but the existing literature already shows that integrated approaches can improve labor market and poverty outcomes in an economically meaningful way. So when thinking of an equilibrated human-centered model for the joint implementation of these programs, we are thinking of a, a better system, both in terms of social rights of individuals, but also of the effectiveness of these programs. Ibu Denny, in this conversation, Veronica and yourself have talked a bit about this idea of work quality. And in particular, you mentioned that Barcoja succeeded in increasing people's wages or the money that they were earning after training, which is a good indicator of work quality, of course. Another indicator of work quality is around protections that you can access under Indonesian labour law. If they can be in formal employment, they will access certain protections. Indonesia also has a social insurance scheme that people can voluntarily contribute to. Do you have a sense about how a program like Prakerja might be helping people either into formal work or opting into some of these insurance schemes so that they've got these kinds of protections in the future? Yeah, this is very important question. So first order concern of Prakerja is to help people find a job. Because again, Indonesia is a large country. Our homework is huge. We face youth unemployment that is six times higher. 90% of Indonesian labor force never attended any vocational training in their life. People who work but do not receive any payment also high. So that's why we need to make people get a job and then have revenue from their work, whether that's informal or formal. That's number one concern. Number two, of course, improve the quality of job. And then we ask questions to the, our participants about their income and also their employability. So about 65% of participants in Prakerja, they say that they work. But unfortunately, their income is only 1.5 to 1 million rupiah per month. And then we ask whether they are under contract or not. Majority are not under contract. It means that they are actually informal workers. And if they run small businesses, we ask whether they have licenses. They say no, then that's actually informal as well. So the portion also quite big. I think it's about 60%. People who are participants in Prakerja and say that they work, actually work in the informal sector. So after three months and also six months after they receive the incentive, after they complete the whole trainings, we run a survey. It is about 14 million participants answered the survey. They say that they got a job. So about one third of people who previously unemployed now they are employed, whether they are employed as a worker or as a small business owner. And then we ask further questions. How many of you actually have licenses now? And then, if I were not mistaken, about 15% of small businesses now actually have a license. 
It means that they move from informal to formal. And then a lot of women find a job even though they stay at home, but they actually work in the formal sector, like as a customer service support and also as a programmer at home. They also part of the sales and marketing teams in big companies. This is very good because technology can help them to tap job opportunity in the formal sector without losing opportunity to basically stay at home and raise their kids. You outlined earlier the results of a range of impact evaluations, and you've also said, though, that the kind of composition of the program is changing this year, and the focus will be more on the training and participants will receive less in the way of incentives and support. How do you think the change in the composition of the program may affect the impact going forward? Of course, the first impact that we observe is the number of participants Interestingly, even though the amount of the cash incentive slashed to be just a quarter from the previous amount, we observe that the interest or batch is still more than 1 million people apply. So go back to the point that Veronica mentioned, the most important number one, to make people know the program. What is the program about? What is it for me? And what they are going to get from the whole package of benefit in this year? And then the second thing is how to make the access easy for everyone. So not providing just access, but easy access such that people from different backgrounds can participate. So in Prakerja, 3% among 16.4 million people are actually people with disabilities. 3% of the participants in Prakerja are ex-migrant workers. And more than 44% of participants actually coming from the bottom 40% of their social status. So Prakerja is really inclusive. So that's why we believe that there is a promising results of the utilization of digital technology. And we will keep doing this and we will observe the data in order to improve the program. So the program will be more effective for the people. And I also need to mention the importance of having impact evaluation and calculation or estimate of return on investment. Because again, serving 5 million people per year, we must still calculate the return on investment. And it turns out for Prakerja, the return on investment roughly is about 15%. So this is investment. This is not just an expense. But again, Many things need to be looked deeper in order to serve better. Now with, the, with more money on the investment, how are we going to make sure that the return is actually high? So we need to keep shaping the market, educate the market, and then give additional menu such that people can get a better job that match with the scholarship that now is actually three times higher. So I think those are the challenges to make sure that the money is well spent. Ibu Denny, Veronica, thank you so much for joining me on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation here and I learned a lot. Thank you very much, Joe. It has been a pleasure to be here and to share the floor with Ibu Denny. I have learned a lot. Before we go, we'd like to end each episode with some quick wins. 
We ask our guests to bring in some recommendations for research, news, events, or even just their experience that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Today we have Jean-Claude Mouhier, Rwanda Program Director for the Ultra Poor Graduation Initiative from BRAC International. Welcome, Jean-Claude. Thank you. To start us off, you've brought to my attention an article which is published over at the OECD Development Matters blog on how BRAC's graduation approach can complement social protection programs for women living in extreme poverty. Can you tell us a bit about that piece and what you found most interesting? Thank you, John. The article is by my colleagues at BRAC, and one of the key points next is that graduation approaches are most transformative and the cost-effective for women of working age who live in extreme poverty because they have the working capacity but lack the skills and financial and social capital to enter into productive networks. Graduation strategies aim to increase household income, skills, and human capital to promote better long-term welfare and poverty reduction. And safety net programs are also increasing, introducing graduation component, which is actually good news for us at BRAC as advocates of graduation. So the graduation approach prioritizes engaging women throughout the course of the program as they typically face the greatest vulnerabilities. Women are definitely vulnerable because of barriers created by an eco gender dynamics. They often lack control or ownership of productive assets. And they also face limited mobility. They are more of the burden of paid care work and have lower access to education, healthcare, markets. So in addition to this, bias social norms limit their opportunities and make them even more vulnerable. But again, beyond economic gains, Graduation also improves participants' overall esteem, confidence, and vision for the future. This also involves participants to tap into market opportunities, advocate for improved access to basic services such as health, education, access to resources that were not previously available to them, and increase their involvement in the community, which is quite important. The government has recently launched a national strategy for sustainable graduation, which represents a notable commitment to empowering people in poverty to develop sustainable life and establish a pathway out of poverty as part of the government's broader efforts to eradicate extreme poverty. Thank you. It is really interesting to hear how the graduation approach, which of course is famous for originating in South Asia and Bangladesh, is being implemented in different contexts and different places. So I think it will be very interesting to follow the BRAC experience in Rwanda as well. While I have you here, of course, it is also very interesting to look at the way that Rwanda is expanding its social protection safety nets more broadly. And in particular, the VUP has been the subject of expansion over recent years. From your vantage point, what do you think have been the most significant gains in the expansion of that program? Well, social protection has been a priority for Rwanda for the past 
Gondias and strengthening social protection in this context has increased the coverage of core safety net programs and promoted the investment in human capital development, which is one of pillars of development for a country like Rwanda. The coverage of the core safety net rolls substantially in targeted catchment areas, including more than 50% of women. But the most interesting component, though, was the home-based agriculture development, ECD intervention, which enabled poor potential with care work responsibility to be employed as caregivers in a dedicated ECD center and to get paid while learning and delivering nutrition and stimulation and better parenting knowledge and practices were being undertaken. Thank you. And we'll provide some links to some resources about the expansion of that program in the show notes. Jean-Claude Mouhir, thank you so much for your time on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining me for the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and leave a review. Back soon. See you then.